Welcome. It's great to have you all joining us this time. <laughs> well, for all of you problem solvers out there, I have some good news. Uh, Acellus now has over one million problems in its published courses out there now. So next time you're really struggling with one of those math problems and trying to get past it and thinking maybe this one shouldn't be in there, just remember, it's literally one in a million. So, <laughs> so hang in there. All right, well, it's time to turn it over to one of the best problem solvers I know. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. There is a bustling city right under our noses. And it's there all of the time. And it's small. It's really, really small. In fact, it's smaller than bacteria. I'm not talking about bacteria. I'm talking about integrated circuits. This is what's inside of all of our computers, inside our phones. It's right under our noses, right? <laughs> and it's amazing what's going on in there. If you could zoom in, you would see all kinds of things going left and right all over the place and all kinds of things being figured out. Pictures going in, pictures going out, you know, and all that activity is happening in a little teeny tiny space. In fact, they, uh, IBM's new process, like we talked about last week, is down to two nanometers, two billionths of a meter for one little logic gate. It's extremely teensy. So that's 50 billion gates and about the size of your finger now. And they are estimating that the power reduction by making it smaller is going to make it so your phone, for example, could last up to four times as long. So, you know, instead of one day until you have to charge it, it would be four days. So it's a really meaningful and impressive difference. Also, when you make them smaller, they go faster which is amazing. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about how they make these amazing little teensy-tiny cities that are all around us. And they start by taking just sand, really clean sand, and they melt it down to get the liquid silica out of there. And then they have a big bath of silicon, and they have to turn it into something they can print the chip on. So they take a little teeny grain of silicon that they use as the seed, and they spin it, they rotate it, as they stick it down into the liquid silicon and slowly draw it up. And as they keep turning it and drawing it up, it pulls out a, a cylinder. And I want to show you a picture. If you look on the far left, those are big chunks of silicon. Then in the middle is a silicon agate that they pulled out slowly like this. You can see at the tip, it's kind of almost like it's sharp. That's where the seed was. And the rate that they pull it out changes how big it gets. And it can take anywhere from hours to weeks to grow a big cylinder like that. And then on the far right, you can see a block of silicon that they cleaned up. They made it perfectly round and got it all ready to go in. And then they take that block, that cylinder, and they slice it into disks circular disks and each one of those disks is really thin and they have to polish it till it's a perfect mirror and this technology is so amazing to me it's like the kind of technology you would need to go 
to the moon or something. It's that advanced. It's been progressing for years and years, and the incentive to make it better is so high because of the value of getting it up there. I want to show you a factory where they're actually making integrated circuits like this. And you can see everyone's wearing their special outfits, right? <laughs> thought it looked kind of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? <laughs> uh, but they have to stay super, super, super clean. In fact, they call these rooms clean rooms. If you look on the floor, you can see the vents, and they recirculate the air and filter it so it's perfectly clean. And then they have to wear the funny hats and everything and the things over their shoes because one teensy, tiny hair or a little piece of dust, if it gets in the machine, can ruin lots and lots of computer chips all at once. And the reason why is because they use something called photolithography to print the circuits on there. First they have to design exactly the shape that they're going to be and everything. And then it's almost like a negative and they shoot the image down onto the chip. And the photosensitive material will engraven the, the shape on there. And they go through a whole bunch of processes where they uh, print something else on and then they etch part of it off and they go back and forth and do all these layers but essentially what they're doing is just making a whole bunch of light switches little teensy tiny light switches that's what gates are but instead of a light switch that you flip on and off with your finger the light switches are flipped on and off with electricity and so the switches hook up to each other and make logic and and make the computer do all kinds of cool stuff now I actually have a silicon wafer I forgot my white Oompa Loompa outfit, but <laughs> I'm going to just hold it up with my hands. <laughs> so check this out. This is a real silicon wafer. And if you look carefully, you can see all those little teeny rectangles in the rainbows there. Each one of those rectangles is a little computer chip in the making. And uh, what they're going to do is cut each one of those little rectangles out and put it into a computer chip. And uh, so uh, after they get everything put on, all these different layers, which is really, really amazing process, then they have to actually add the wires, which is yet another process, and they draw the wires on to connect the gates. So it's all hooked up and ready to go. Then they put it in a, in a machine kind of like this that tests it. And these little teeny probes move around to each one of those little computer chips and run tests on it to make sure that it's going to be functional. And after they've tested every single one, then they have to cut them out really carefully and put it into an actual chip that's going to go on a circuit board. And remember, this is what a, a chip looks like, that big black thing with the little pins coming off. Well, usually inside of a chip like that, the silicon wafer, the actual brains inside, is a little teeny chip like the size of your fingernail in the middle of that. And the rest of it's just packaging to, to make it big enough for the pins to stick out and not be too small. And uh, it's amazing that it fits into that little teeny tiny package. And uh, it's changed the world, hasn't it? And this is all around us. This is under our noses all the time. And I think that sometimes we should stop and realize how amazing this technology is that's all around us. So, so keep using it. That's all the tech we have the time for. <laughs> all right. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias.
So John said that his fancy stuff he was talking about was even smaller than bacteria. So I was going to talk about bacteria, <laughs> um, which is kind of cool. Um, but I also brought a sample plate as well. Um, it's a tissue. There's going to be a few more in there after I sneeze. But could there be some there now? And you know, when we observe and we look at things, we start to come to conclusions. And you know, the beginning of science is really about observing, right? And coming to conclusions or hypothesis as we, we're working on our science experiments and science fair projects. Well, when we observe and come to a conclusion, how do we know it's right? Or do we just, well, make sense? So it's right. We're gonna talk about a conclusion that the whole scientific community had about where things come from until somebody came and had a different hypothesis, which, okay, you can have your own opinion, that's fine, but then he used science to prove his hypothesis, okay? So we need to talk about something called spontaneous generation to understand what we're going to get into tonight, and that is some really exciting stuff, and this is like a few hundred years ago, okay, and we're trying to figure out where things come from, like where did those flies on that dying animal come from? Or things like that, how can you explain? Well, they had an explanation, and it was called spontaneous generation. It was rotting meat creates flies. <laughs> Page two. Okay. <laughs> Frogs come from muddy puddles. Okay. And this is real, people. Okay. I always wondered where Kermit came from. That is not a mud puddle, that is my home. Okay. Mice come from old grain. Now this sounds really wild, but if you stop and think, okay, I'm observing, and I observe that when uh, there's a dead animal, so it's meat, when there's meat left out, all of a sudden, in a little while, maybe two days, there are flies coming from the meat. They're all over the meat. And there's even baby flies on there. The meat, it's like it made them. Okay, that's a little bit intense, but just we're thinking about our observations. Here's a puddle, and these frogs just appear out of the puddle. And if you leave grain out, you leave it out too long, it will create mice. Mice start crawling out of that grain. Okay, if I used this science about my kids, like, you know, they come from cinnamon bears. Okay, <laughs> if you put cinnamon bears in a drawer, my kids appear. Okay, it's just spontaneous generation. Okay, so. That we need to understand that because now we're going to come over to a man named Louis Pasteur, and he was a science teacher and a chemist. And he lived in France, was born and raised in France, and he became aware of a problem that was increasing with a lot of their, their foods and drinks, and that was they would go bad, and they would go bad fairly quickly. Um, milk, their milk would go bad. Wine would go bad, okay? They'd get their wine out. They're going to have some wine, and they take a sip, and it's vinegar, okay? <laughs> Salad dressing. No, no. It, it, it went bad. Um, it smelled bad. It tasted bad. And the milk, same deal. We, we know how that is. If you smell the milk, and it's bad, well, they kind of took that spontaneous generation concept, and they put it on there. So they said, so bad-smelling things, those things came out of the milk, and it, it's sickness. The smell is sickness and it's disease and it's coming out. So it's spontaneously 
was created by the wine or by the milk or by the cheese or whatever was going bad. And Louis did not think this was the case. He was sure there was some kind of scientific way that this was happening. So he gets some wine that's gone bad. He starts looking at it under a microscope. And he notices that there's these little objects inside of the wine that's gone bad. And it's, it's, it's like there are these objects and they're increasing and they're growing. There's more of them. And he concludes that these things, now we would find out later that this was bacteria that he was finding, these things are making the wine bad. They're involved with making the wine bad. And they were, no, 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 no. It's the wine is making those things and putting these, these objects out that you're finding. He's like, no, no, no. Somehow they're getting into the wine and then they're growing. Okay? And he was sure that living things are only made by other living things. This non-living liquid didn't make these things that are now growing and multiplying. Well, they didn't believe him. So he figured out first how to destroy them. And he found that if he raised the temperature of the wine to like boiling, those things he could get rid of. Okay, we would keep the wine good, but only for so long because don't forget spontaneous generation. Of course, they've slapped it on there. The wine will spontaneously make more of these. Well, he did an experiment. He said, okay, I believe his hypothesis was that these little germs or bacteria were in particles of the air. And they were so small that even though they're there, you can't see them, and they were settling into the liquid. So he covered a flask of boiled broth, beef broth, and he had one flask with boiled beef broth that was uncovered, and the one that was uncovered went bad. So he said, okay, this proves that it didn't happen from spontaneous generation. No, 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 it doesn't prove that. Duh, spontaneous generation needs air. <laughs> so he's, he's trying to think of a way he can show this without falling into this, it needs air. So he, he takes the flask of the, the stuff he's going to keep protected, and he melts it, pulls it up and down. Look at this diagram. This is a swan neck flask is what they eventually called these. So this flask tube is still open to the air. So the air can still get in. But if he's right in his hypothesis that the, the particles are in the air and falling, they're settling, they're not going to be able to settle into this beef broth that he's boiled because directly above it is enclosed. So he sets this up. He does the experiment again. He leaves it. And in two days, it's still clean. In a week, it's still clean. He leaves it for a whole year. There's some beef, bro. Um, he leaves it for a whole year, and it still hasn't gone bad. And then to prove his point, he breaks that swan neck off. So now it's exposed directly above, and in two days, it goes bad. And so this helps prove his hypothesis that, in fact, spontaneous generation is not what's creating this bacteria, but the bacteria is in the air, and it's settling down into the liquid, and then with what's in the liquid, it multiplies and it grows. Now, this is a really big deal because all of a sudden we found a way to keep things longer. So he patents what eventually becomes called pasteurization, and it's a process of heating up things and liquids to a high enough temp, not super high, but high enough that water would boil, and it kills a lot of this bacteria, and it allows things to stay 
good for a lot longer if you keep that enclosed from you know the air that's may maybe got those particles in it going around and he expanded this as well to hospitals um, hey let's put your surgery utensils maybe in boiling water and kill what's on there because all of a sudden it wasn't oh it looks clean yeah we're good it, it needs to be it is clean because a lot of those bacteria uh, microbes are so small we can't see them with our eyes so it helped transform the world in how we are able to keep things clean and safe so if you have an idea you need to test it but you never know what cinnamon bears can do thank you <laughs> And now, introducing Roger Billings. That was a very subtle entrance. <laughs> yeah. Hydrogen inflation, it's natural. I like that, yeah. it is natural. Well, it's good to welcome everybody here today. And I, I thought that was really interesting. John's little city's right under our nose. Yeah. It really is amazing. And, and the thing that he told us about, it's like just light switches on and off, but billions of them. How do you turn a light switch into being able to solve problems and to be able to move photographs and all the things we do with our computers. And that is a very fascinating subject. And everything that a computer does is very simple, but it does so many simple little things all at the same time, it can accomplish amazing feats, can it? It's really neat, thank you. And um, I'm not gonna get into the cinema Cinnamon bears in the drawer thing. <laughs> Sounds like there's a story behind that. It really happened. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sounds good. But it is exciting to get back to hydrogen. You yes, know, people have is. been asking, so how many hydrogen atoms do we have? They want to know. Yeah. So how many do we have? Well, they should count them. <laughs> how would they do that? Right. <laughs> there are so many that if they spent their whole lifetime counting them, assuming they could see them mm -hmm. individually, mm -hmm. they would never be able to count them in a lifetime. Uh, it takes lots and lots and lots of hydrogen to make a real person. Am I real? <laughs> I have a hypothesis. I'm working on being real. Yeah, they, they're reporting a lot more UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> that is... That's true. And now some they people are. are starting to believe that these UFOs have something to do with frogs. <laughs> yeah. And, and we know that you have your people. I do. And, and we're going to figure this out. We're, we're watching. Yeah, we're. So we were talking about hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And I, I showed a little bit of the hydrogen engine last time. And I'd like to. Maybe show it again. In fact, this time I decided that we ought to have it right here. Wow. So it's a handy hydrogen engine. If the power goes off, I can turn this on to make electricity. That's the real thing, isn't it? That is the real thing. And it turns out that this particular engine 
is exactly like the first one. Really? But it isn't the first one. But it's exactly like it. Mm-hmm. And there's a real story about that. This part, this little blue part, is the original. That's so neat. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating. Um, the original, original, original engine has a whole other story to it. Um, after I finished the science fair, mm-hmm. uh, my one and only brother wondered if he could use the engine on his little go-kart. He asked you if he could use the engine? And what'd you say? As a loving brother, I made a mistake. <laughs> I said, sure. Okay, so he took the hydrogen carburetor off, this blue thing that Uh I had made, and he put a gasoline one on, put on his go-kart, which was fine. I didn't mind if he'd do that. But then he sold the go-kart. Oh, that's not very loving of him. Hmm. (laughs) Of course, back in the day, we didn't realize that this little engine was going to get as famous, but he saved the carburetor. That, That was good of him. Yeah, and he was kind of smart how he went about it because when he told me, I sold the, I sold the engine, he didn't tell me he kept the carburetor. And I, I was really kind of disappointed. And then months later, he said, guess what I found? <laughs> the carburetor. Anyway, yeah. But uh, I want to kind of pick up this, this uh, story of, of the hydrogen car because it started with this engine, some of its new parts, but this first hydrogen engine that would run on hydrogen. Hydrogen goes inside, the gas is compressed with air, it's ignited with a spark plug, and the explosion pushes the piston down and creates the power. And when I saw that I could do this in this engine, I then moved to my father's Model A, which became the first hydrogen car. And uh, a lot of adventures began. But an interesting thing about the hydrogen uh, Model A was that the hydrogen costs more than gasoline did. Now, who cares about the cost of fuel? I mean, it's, it's making no pollution. So who cares that it costs more? And I found out everybody cares. (laughs) So um, when when you invent something, you you have to expect a few little kinks that you have to work out. And the kink was it's too expensive. It costs more than gasoline. And in fact, a lot of hydrogen is made from hydrocarbons, mainly from natural gas in this country or from coal gasification overseas. So it's going to cost a little bit more than a fossil fuel. Why use it if it's going to costs more. And um, that started me on an interesting quest to lower the price of hydrogen. If it costs more, then all you have to do is lower the price. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Well, I couldn't figure out any way to change the price of how much hydrogen costs. I mean, it costs because that's what people make it for. That's what they sell it for. So I came up with the idea of what if, instead of lowering the cost of the hydrogen, what if I made the car not need so much? What if with one gallon of gasoline equivalent of hydrogen, 
you could go as far as another car would go with three gallons equivalent. In other words, the car would be more efficient. It would have better mileage. Internal combustion engines, which are these machines that have pistons going up and down and uh, fire igniting the fuel, are very inefficient. They do turn the wheels, but if you hold your, your hand and feel the exhaust coming out of any engine, out of a car, the exhaust is hot. In fact, the tailpipe can actually burn you, it's so hot. And all that heat that's coming out of the engine is heat that's not doing work, turning your car. So it's heat that is wasted. And in engineering, they say about a third of the energy from your gasoline fuel goes out the tailpipe as hot exhaust gases. About a third goes out your radiator, your cooler in the front of the car, and less than a third actually turns the wheels. And in fact, internal combustion engines are notoriously about 25% efficient. Out of all the fuel you buy, you only get one quarter's worth of the fuel of actual driving. And that's because of the inefficiency of the engine. Well, I worked first on ways to make the hydrogen engine more efficient. And I did have some success with that. Mm -hmm. A little bit, but not nearly enough. And then we came up with the idea of what if we didn't even have an engine in the car? Let's just not have an engine. How would that work? Well, one idea was to just cut a big hole and get some good rubber base shoes <laughs> and stick out the bottom. And not only would you save money on fuel, but it would be toning at the same time. And since we're made of hydrogen, it would run on hydrogen, huh? That's true. That's true. You figured Literally it all out. Literally running. Well, the idea of running a car without an engine meant that we somehow have to turn hydrogen, which is fuel, into motion, turning wheels. There had to be a way to do that and to do it very, very efficiently. And the answer is a fuel cell. Yeah. A fuel cell. And uh, I just happened to bring a fuel cell with me tonight. <clears throat> yeah, hmm. that says Peugeot, and that was from last week. Would you week. like to take a moment to explain <laughs> that? <laughs> no. Okay. I have a, uh, a fuel cell. And this is actually, can you see through that? I can see through it. This is a, a piece of plastic, only this is an unusual kind of plastic. Have you ever heard of Teflon? Teflon is a kind of plastic that's strong. It doesn't react with chemicals, and it's slippery. Things don't stick to it. It's kind of a neat invention. Well, this is like Teflon, except it has a special enhancement. And uh, the correct name for this, this will be on the exam later, is a polyperfluorinated membrane. And Perfluorinated. I think that means it has blossoms. Perfluorinated, <laughs> no. yeah. Teflon is a molecule that has a long chain going through the material. And this is that same kind of chain, except on the end of the chains in this special material, they stick a sulfonate radical. Some of you are saying, what is a sulfonate yeah, radical? Yeah, 
Well, have you ever heard of an acid called sulfuric acid? Mm -hmm. The formula for sulfuric acid is H2SO4. And two hydrogen atoms and a sulfate radical, sulfuric acid. Well, if you put a sulfonate radical on the end of this chain, when you dip this in water, the sulfonate radical can't go floating around in the liquid because it's combined to the end of the chain. But chemically, it looks like sulfuric acid to anything that's out there. Hmm. Now, here's the... Here's the interesting thing about fuel cells. When, when you have a, a container of water, you have burnt hydrogen. That's what water is. Remember we talked about hydrogen combining with oxygen to form H2O or water. What you want to do if you're going to make hydrogen is you want to pull the hydrogen molecules apart. So you have the oxygen back and you have the hydrogen back and then you can burn it again. And it can be burned as many times you pull it apart. However, when it goes together, when hydrogen and oxygen joins together, it gives off energy. But when you tear it apart, you have to put that energy back in. And the way we often do that is with electricity. With electricity, we do a process called electrolysis where we use electricity to pull the atoms of hydrogen and oxygen apart, okay? So when you burn hydrogen in the engine, you're putting the hydrogen back with oxygen, and then when you make hydrogen, you're ripping it back apart. Well, this is an interesting way to burn hydrogen because this particular cell has the property of transporting photons, not photons, protons. Photon is light. A proton is those little particles in the middle of an atom. A hydrogen atom has one proton and an electron going out around the outside. Well, if I were to put some hydrogen along this membrane, the protons in the hydrogen atoms would be pulled through the membrane to the other side. That's what the property of this material is. Why does it do that? It does it because of an electronegative attraction. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, a process that literally pulls the, the proton out of the atom. And the interesting thing with this is, if you have a proton, you have most of a hydrogen. All you need is an electron. Electrons are very light compared to protons. So you get the proton through. If you could just get an electron now, Remember, an electron is electricity. Mm -hmm. If you get electricity, then you'd have water. I mean, excuse me, you'd have hydrogen. So what happens here is we put these in a cell. We put hydrogen over here, and we put oxygen over here. The hydrogen gets pulled through. Just the heart of the hydrogen gets pulled through the membrane, and it wants to react with the oxygen to make water over here, but it can't react because... The oxygen says, I will only join with you if you give me your electron, and the proton left his electron behind. And the electrons start accumulating over here, and they want to be in the water too, so what they do is they have to come around the cell. But how do they come around? You have to hook up a wire to bring the electrons around to the other side. And that's where we do our trick. Because when the wire comes out, we don't just bring them to the other side, which would make the electrons really happy. What we do is we take the wire over and hook it up to the motor 
to power the car. And then it gets on the <laughs> other side. So literally, the protons come through the membrane. The electrons have to go out and do work by lighting a light or by running a motor, and then they come back, and so we get water out. Exactly the same we get out of the engine, water. But there is no piston. There is no flame. There are no moving parts. And the amazing thing is, this is like tripling your hydrogen. Because the same car with the same weight, the same people, the same speed on the same road will go three times as far if you use this instead of an engine. So when you say a cell, because this is a membrane. This doesn't look like a cell, does it? No. If I was actually going to run a car on this, I would have put an electrode. This coaster is like an electrode. Sure because I have to have a conductor, and I'd have to have another one on the other side. And this cell, if I hooked it up with wires and ready to do work, would generate about three-quarters of a volt of electricity, but a lot of current. Three-quarters mm. of a volt is hard to do much with. So what we do is we stack them up. And that makes a cell? And that makes a cell because we have a whole big stack of these. Okay. And you know because you helped me make these before <laughs> uh -huh, when you were a student. But as we stack these up, like in the first fuel cell car, we stacked up 130 of these so that we get enough voltage to be able to run a big motor to power a car. So this is a fuel cell. Now I want to I wanna kind of show you a fuel cell in action. So okay. think of these. So this, this membrane... And remember, it's a polyperforinated membrane. This particular one happens to have a brand name of Nafion. It was made by DuPont. And uh, this membrane was actually created for the purpose of making chlorine. Interesting. Yeah. It was an accident that we use it oh. for hydrogen. <laughs> okay. but, but seriously, uh, have you heard of PVC pipes yes. like we use in our plumbing? Uh -huh. Polyvinyl chloride pipes, mm -hmm. the, those are pipes made of chlorine, chlorine gas. And where do you get chlorine? From salt. Remember salt is sodium chloride? If it was chlorine, it's poisonous. Yeah. If, if it's reacted like salt, then it's just kind of tasty. Good on watermelon, right? Yes. But if you, if you take a sample of seawater, it's salty because it's full of salt. And if you run electricity through seawater and electrolyze it, you get hydrogen off one electrode, and off the other one, instead of getting oxygen, you get chlorine. And that's how they make chlorine. And this cell was made for a chlorine cell, and we borrowed it for hydrogen, and it worked out real well. They work really, really good with hydrogen. So I wanna, I wanna show some things. Okay. Before I show you the fuel cell, I'd like to look at the engine. We, we saw the engine last time, but it wasn't actually here, so I decided what I'd bring it over. So here's the engine. <coughs> I think maybe we can sit better if I come around to this side and we go to that camera. Uh-oh. Not, not now. Not now. Okay. Excuse me. All right. So on three, I'm going to turn on that camera. Is it on? Can you see it? Yes, you can. Can you see these tubes? Back behind, oh, it's hard to see back here. That camera doesn't float so well. Uh, ha, ha, there we go. Now I've got myself an operator. Behind this motor 
I mean, this engine is an electric motor. Now you can sit real good. Hello, motor. This is an electric motor. This is the kind that you plug into electricity and it runs whatever you want to run with the motor. And I have it hooked up to this engine. So if I turn on the electricity, this motor will start turning, which will start this engine turning. I'll show you what I mean. I'll turn it on. There it goes. So the engine turned, but it didn't run. You say, well, how can it turn if it ran? Anyway, it didn't run because I didn't turn on the hydrogen. And when I turned it off, it stopped. I used that motor like a starter motor in a car to get it turning to start the engine. Then I turn off the starter. And if I have hydrogen, then it ought to stay running. Does that make sense? Should we try it? So what I'm going to do when it starts motoring with the motor, I'm going to turn on the hydrogen. See if you can hear a change to the sound when it starts to burn hydrogen, have the little explosions inside. Here we go. Wait for it. You hear the difference? No hydrogen. Hydrogen. Turned off the motor, but it's still running. All right, can you see that I can actually control this by turning the hydrogen up and down? actually have a hydrogen engine. Pretty cool. It turned off. It'll quit. That's so and like cool. I said last week, the exhaust is coming out just a piece of pipe that I painted black, but there's no muffler. Muffler normally catches the sound, and the sound therefore is able to make this thing run. This is my little blue carburetor, which uh, like say I made myself in high school shop, and the hydrogen comes in here, the air goes in there, they, they mix right above the valve, and, and it works. No Pretty question. simple. Can, can you hold it for just a minute? Yeah. I'm, I'm giving a lecture right now. I can hold it. Okay. Can you hold it a little lower? <laughs> I, I'm going to get right back to you, but right now I'm live. <laughs> Science Are live. live. Are you live? Yeah. <laughs> Science live. And behind the page A sign. <laughs> That's right. She wants to. Here, this is May yours. I take that, please? Yeah. You, you use that to hold your question. <laughs> Here is a fuel cell. This is a Rowan. This is the membrane that is inside the fuel cell. And there's two pieces of metal. And in the middle, there is a, a membrane. And the membrane has electrodes. And I have two wires hooked up to this cell so that if I turn on hydrogen and I have to have some oxygen and bring it into the cell, then these protons start getting pulled through the membrane and I should start generating electricity. And the electricity is hooked up to this little electric motor over here. So the goal is to make that motor turn through energy I make by reacting, turning hydrogen into water inside the cell. 
So I'm going to turn on a little bit of oxygen and bubbling through here. I'm turning on some hydrogen. So a lot, I've got little bubbles uh, flowing through here. It's going up through the tank. It'll take a minute to clear the lines. This will go up through. And the idea is now, can I get, oh, there we go. I now have the uh, hydrogen creating water, creating electricity, and turning the motor. And the motor is equivalent to turning the wheels in a car. But just think about it. Now with the same tank of gas, the car will go three times as far. So this is like if you go into the gas station and you buy $40, $50, let's say, of fuel, instead of going the normal 300 miles range, this is going to go three times as far for the same amount of fuel. And that all of a sudden makes the hydrogen cars uh, competitive with, with other cars. And still, no pollution. The only thing coming out of here is pure water vapor. And I think that's neat. Okay, could you excuse me for just a minute? Did you have a question? <laughs> you forgot your question. <laughs> yes, I do have a question. You're giving me a hard time, aren't you? I feel like I'm being set up. Okay. I was wondering where you got the hydrogen for the motor, the engine. So where's the hydrogen coming yeah, from? Yeah, where's it coming from? All of a sudden you flip a switch you, and there's You mean hydrogen. in this experiment right here? Uh-huh. Where do you get the hydrogen? Could I answer that next week? <laughs> you could. I could bring my book next week. I didn't know. I have a Smithsonian book that has you in it. Okay. I feel so. Do you see this little thing right here? This, this, is, this is the secret. That's see the curtain, this? Can you Rob? see this? <laughs> 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 Serves you right, doesn't it? Da, 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 that. Oh, look at that. Okay, I did not know that was bad. And there is the hydrogen. Yeah. That was not nice. So. If you look carefully, this is a tank full of hydrogen. And according to this gauge, the hydrogen in this tank, woo, is 1,650 pounds. And this green tank is full of oxygen. So I have oxygen I'm using for the fuel cell, and I have uh, hydrogen, which I'm using for, for both. Why does it measure out in pounds? The reason that this is broken <laughs> Has something to do with frogs. And, and my mental thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Now, what did you say? You said 650 pounds. 16. 1,600 pounds per square inch. A, a tire on your car might have 30 or 40 pounds pressure. This is 1,600 pounds. And why do we do that? Yeah. So that we can store enough in this little tank. It's a pretty big tank. Mm -hmm. This is the same kind of tank I used in the very first car, the Model A. Neat. And uh, as it turns out, if you have two of these tanks, uh -huh. actually 2.3 of these tanks, you have the same amount of energy as in one gallon of gasoline. Really? So it takes a lot of tank to store hydrogen. And that also takes high pressure if you put in a pressure tank like this. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I've spent quite a bit of my research on better ways to store hydrogen. And I'm You've going to talk about it. that. Yeah. yeah. 
because storage is one of the most challenging problems we have to solve with hydrogen and we're looking for better ones but I have found a way that is safe and good. When you have a tank full of pressure if you got in an accident and broke the tank it may not be real good and they've tried to solve that by making the tanks really really strong but things can still break. <laughs> I have proof <laughs> if you want to know but um, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if you could store hydrogen in a way that was really safe? It would be. And I, I'm going to show you that I have found a way to do that. I'm and very I excited. think that's part of why hydrogen cars can be real neat. Now, you notice this thing's really, really cooking along. It is. And this will run a long, long time. Uh, when the early fuel cells came out, they had a problem. And that is that after the fuel cell would run, for months, like the equivalent of maybe, oh, 30 or 40,000 miles of driving, they would die. The fuel cell would die. And, you know, uh, that's not acceptable. People expect their cars to run 100,000, 200, 300,000 miles, and 30, 40,000 was not enough. And so that was one of the first research challenges I took on. How do you make these fuel cells not burn out, not corrode? And uh, when we were ready to build the first fuel cell car, we invented a way of making a fuel cell that would not burn out. And that was in the year 1991. <laughs> and if you do the math on that, that was exactly about 30 years ago. Yeah. That's a long time ago, really. And in that amount of time, you know, you could literally drive millions of miles on how long we've operated our test fuel cells. This is one of my little test fuel cells. This fuel cell is 30 years old. And you wow. notice it's still running just fine. And it has never been rebuilt and it's never needed to. And we ran it and we ran it and we ran it and we ran it. And so we have solved that uh, problem of them burning out. Well, Mr. Gonzalez and I think you're a genius. I have a no, lot of respect respect for Mr. Gonzalez's yes, he's opinion. he's your student. He yeah, I, I really Roger respect his genius. opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I really agree. It's like a big magic wand. Yes. <laughs> yes. We will talk about it later <laughs> in a friendly way. Okay. So, so this is kind of neat, isn't it? Is. It is. Neat. The tiniest little bubbles of hydrogen are coming through here, and actually, I'm, I'm actually using more hydrogen than I need, comes into the cell where the hydrogen is pulled through the membrane. There's no fire. This isn't warm. It does get a little bit warm, but it isn't warm. It isn't hot. Water vapor comes out, and you have electricity, and it is very, very efficient. This cell, if you run it at very low power settings like it is right now, can be up into the 90, 90s percentile of efficiency wow. compared to 25 for an engine. Uh, in a car, we can't run it that efficient because we need to get more power out of it. But you can get it like three times as efficient as an internal combustion engine. And that's why I think hydrogen fuel cell cars are, are really a good so idea. Exciting. And now a lot of people... <laughs> are building these fuel cell cars. When I say a lot, 
There are six auto companies that are mm -hmm. manufacturing hydrogen fuel cell cars. And uh, when you, uh, you hear about the electric cars, like, have you heard about the Tesla? I've heard about okay, it. Okay, it's an electric car. It has motors that turn the wheels, and they charge up the battery, and then you drive with electricity out of the battery. Well, did you know that you can take the battery out of a Tesla car, put in a fuel cell, and it will run? Same motors, same everything. So really, the fuel cell replaces the battery. And you literally could make a Tesla go twice as far, three times as far with hydrogen and the storage technologies that I have developed. So uh, electric cars are really now hydrogen cars. So you're going to make one? Make one? Are you going to convert a Tesla? A Tesla? You think I should? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I... I really believe that we need to make all of our cars uh, in whatever way is most efficient. And batteries are, are getting better and better, and I really respect the guys that have been developing batteries. But the hydrogen fuel cell is a very good battery. Uh, one of the projects that Tesla, excuse me, that the founder of Tesla, Elon Musk, has spoken about is making an electric airplane. And he said that before he can make an electric airplane, his batteries have to get a whole lot better, a whole lot lighter. They're way too heavy for an airplane. But my battery isn't. A hydrogen fuel cell, especially my kind of fuel cells, with liquid hydrogen are light enough to make electric airplanes today. And I think that's a neat idea too. So this is a whole new field that's just ready to get started. Um, I was reading an article this week about uh, the inventor, Nikolai Tesla, that the Tesla car is named after. And Tesla was the guy that uh, really promoted alternating current power. Remember we talked about how you can transmit it long distances mm -hmm. because it can go through a transformer that steps the voltage way up and then steps it down when it gets to the destination. Well, Tesla had some other ideas and one of his ideas, which he came out with 100 years ago, all of a sudden they're finding commercial application for. And you know, it's fun when an inventor invents something that you can use uh, right away, mm -hmm. but it's fascinating that some of these ideas take a long time to develop. This whole hydrogen thing, my, my science fair project, wait for it, <laughs> was in 1966. And you know that's over 50 years ago. We celebrated the 50 year <laughs> uh, commemoration years ago and now it's finally beginning to see commercialization. And I think the day of hydrogen, the hydrogen energy economy, is still in the future. And I think it's going to change a lot of things about our lives and the way we live. And this just shows what can come out of a science fair project. Love it. Okay. <laughs> now I know where the hydrogen comes from. Yeah. <laughs> so there are probably people wondering if we staged that. Probably. You didn't know what I was going to do, did you? No, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> da da da. <laughs>
I'm excited about this. Religion. This proves really though that it is science live. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's All more right. fun that way. Well, I uh, I'm excited about hydrogen. I'm excited about the potential. There are so many things we can do with it, and many many of the technologies that we talk about for all of these decades are now starting to become really possible. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is the hydrogenicides. And Tobias talked about bacteria. Well, hydrogenicides are little one-cell organisms that are really neat. And I think they're going to be very important to us because they don't, uh, they don't eat food, they eat hydrogen. And when they eat the hydrogen, literally hydrogen is fed to them through the solution they're growing in, and they grow, they create a very healthy protein, something that is what we need, we and animals need in our diets. And in a tank, in a dark shed, you can grow uh, protein with these hydrogenicides, and I think it can really change uh, world, world hunger because we can, we can grow so much food this way. And so, you know, hydrogen can run your car or feed the world or both. And our bodies probably really like it because it's just natural. It doesn't have a lot of junk in it. Well, it's, it's a good, complete mm-hmm. protein, and it's something that I uh, am personally very interested in and mm-hmm. plan to, to help develop. But there's another thing, it's, when you think about a hydrogenicide, it's a, it's a one-cell organism, living organism, that feeds off hydrogen. So I call it a hydrogen-fueled bacteria. Mm-hmm. And it, it grows into this wonderful protein food. But there's another one-cell organism that uh, is also very interesting, and this is a, a type of algae. Remember algae's little green organisms that float around in the ocean in the sea. But this particular one, uh, if you put it in water and then put the water in sunshine, it grows absorbing sunshine. A lot of, uh, of plants and, and, and organisms use sun. But this one makes, as a byproduct, hydrogen. So just think about that. You just put this green stuff in a tube, close it up in a in, in a piece of glass, stick it in the sun, and hydrogen starts bubbling off. Oh, cool. What a neat way to make your hydrogen, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And that is something that I've already done and researched with, and I think it's kind of fun. Another interesting thing is that when this, um, this green stuff grows, mm-hmm. and you get a whole bunch of it, you have to clean it out, mm-hmm. and it turns out to be a, uh, a very good high-protein food supplement too. So there are things that you can do where you're collecting the solar and you're making food and at the same time you're making hydrogen. Hydrogen is just such a basic element. It, it just makes so many things work and that's why some of us call it the hydrogen energy economy. And I think we're going to see a lot of things happening. I hope a lot of you consider getting involved in hydrogen experiments and projects. Okay, I'd they're, love to. They're neat. <laughs> Do I get to? You're going to do some more at the academy here? Well, 
Hydrogen can be dangerous for frogs. <laughs> I, I'm not a frog. You're not a frog? I'm not a frog. Okay, well that's, that's <laughs> then maybe you can. Thank you. I mean, maybe an alien, but I'm not a frog. You're an alien. Yeah. Is this an admission? No. I said, I may be. <laughs> maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about hydrogen, though. Well, I, I am too. I, I think that the thing John talked to us, Dr. John, tonight about the the disc and the way they grow the little circuits on the disc. Uh, I really think we need to make more of those discs in this country. Yes. We make some, but uh, we buy a lot of them from, from other places. And uh, I, I think America needs to make some of these really high cutting edge technology. In fact, we need to make a lot of them. I'm going to encourage all of you to consider doing things to help us start producing things again. I don't know of anybody in the U.S. right now that manufactures a U.S.-made television. And television came from the U.S. And I, I love to buy things from our, our friends in, in other nations, but we ought to make them here too. And I, I think it's neat when we make stuff. The idea of making those discs with sand Think about it, that's just sand from the beach. That's uh, amazing, but now we can make them with diamonds. Mm -hmm. And if you make uh, computer chips with diamonds, they are gonna be faster. That means instead of your cell phone losing its charge in four days, you should be able to go two weeks. Oh. That's pretty cool, because you know, that's how long I wanna run mine. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. The way things are going, someday you'll just get in your car, hook your cell phone up to your car, and your cell phone will power your car. <laughs> <laughs> and hydrogen, huh? It must Diamonds be. and hydrogen, must there be. we go. <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing, and the reason I want to just tack this on the end today, is that the reason we can make a computer chip based on diamond is because we've now learned how to grow diamonds. And you can do it with a million degrees and almost a million pounds pressure, like the, in the middle of a star or the earth or somewhere, or you can do it in a hydrogen atmosphere. That's the new discovery. And it's the hydrogen atmosphere that means you can grow those wafers. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to say is hydrogen's a pretty basic element you can see why they chose it to be the most abundant element in the universe. Mm -hmm. When you look at a star, you're looking at a body that is fueled by hydrogen. Not by burning hydrogen, because the stars don't have oxygen. Uh, if they did, they'd blow up, quite frankly. Uh, but no, they're turning hydrogen into helium with a nuclear reaction, and that is the way all the stars are, are lit up at night with hydrogen. So, so no excited. wonder we're so excited about hydrogen is the universal fuel, okay? Okay. And yes, you can work on hydrogen. And you should convert that white car of yours to run on hydrogen. <laughs> Will it go faster? Will it go faster? <laughs> that depends on the foot on the pedal. <laughs> okay, we'll be good. As someone once asked me, so are hydrogen cars faster? And it depends on how far you push the pedal down. Uh, 
hydrogen engines can be made to have uh, as much power as you choose to design them for. And electric cars can especially be powerful if you want to. Uh, so how much power depends on the design of the engine. But uh, hydrogen is a wonderful fuel. We're starting to hear about supersonic transports again. Um, we had the Concorde flying from the 60s clear up till the end of the millennium. And they fueled the Concorde with jet fuel. And that, I think, was a huge mistake. It's the reason they were never economically viable. The Concorde kind of was inspired by the SST. The United States was going to build the supersonic transport. And that project was moving along. They were even building the hydrogen plants to make hydrogen for the supersonic transport. Hydrogen weighs only one-third as much as jet fuel for the same amount of energy. And when you're going that fast, weight is everything. That's the difference of them being profitable or not. Now we're talking about having supersonic transports in the next, well, some people are saying five years, which we could do if we reset our minds to it. But they're made possible by hydrogen. So now if you want to go from L.A. to New York, you can go, you know, in a half hour. Um, that's kind of nice. Uh, we should be flying supersonic, or, or some of our military planes do. Mm -hmm. And it's just exciting to think of all the things we can do with this new technology. Sure okay. is. John wants me to tell you that he really likes you, and Jaden loves you. Did you know that I really <laughs> like frogs? I do know you like frogs. Yeah, frogs <laughs> are really interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I know people really like them. I would not actually be aware of the fact that frogs come from mud puddles. <laughs> if I had not been a science life, I, I, I never knew that. Thank you. Thanks. See you next time.